Psalm 139. That'll be our last psalm in this uh, study of the psalms. We will um, we'll start a new series when I get back from India. I, I think most of you know that I'm leaving Thursday to go to India. Oh. Um, you know, there's 24 time zones around the, um, around the globe. This is 11 and a half away from Memphis. So it's just about on the other side of the planet. And um, getting there is not altogether the funnest experience. But anyway, that's, that's where I'll be for a couple of weeks uh, in India. Um, there, there are numerous people who would say that the greatest of all the Psalms is Psalm 139. I, I'm not sure I'm among them, but um, I can say this much. I, I certainly understand why they say that. There are big thoughts about God in this Psalm. Um, omniscience, omnipresence. We'll see those things, I, I hope, a little bit more clearly as we read it and then study it together. So you follow in your copies as I read you Psalm 139 in its entirety. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me 
and lead me in the way everlasting. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God, that endures forever. You might have thought it was a rule, a rule of every sermon, that is, that it contained three points and sometimes a poem. But if that's a rule, then I'm about to break it this morning because my, my sermon only has one point. And here it is. All theology must lead you to doxology. That's the point. All theology must lead you to doxology. Try to explain it as we go. But, um, folks, it is impossible to have too much knowledge about God. But it is very possible to have that knowledge wrongly or to hold it wrongly. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 8. Knowledge puffs up. Because, you see, all knowledge of God or theology, all theology is supposed to lead us to doxology. And when it doesn't, that knowledge is dangerous, hurtful. I'm, I'm, um, I'm not the originator of that sentence, that is, all theology must lead you to doxology. I didn't think that up. First time I ever read it was um, out of a, a Wayne Grudem systematic theology book. But I don't think he originated it either. Um, he could have, but I don't really know who the author or the, or the uh, originator of that sentence is. But I, but I can say this. It might very well have been written by someone who was studying Psalm 139. Because that's what it does. That's what the psalm does. And that's what I want to show you. I want to walk you through the psalm a bit and show you that all theology must lead us to doxology. The, the first verse um, is very clearly the, um, the summary statement of the psalm. He says, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. Let, me. let me just show you a couple of things about that, just, just grammatically. And, um, and, and I think they will set the stage for the rest. But for instance, um, you'll notice that there are two me's in verse 1. Thou hast searched me and known me. Those two me's. The second one is not in the Hebrew. It's certainly implied, but it's not in there. What, what, the, what the text literally says is, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known. Do you see how that how that intensifies things? It seems that he's describing that he the stark realization that God knows things and knows it very intimately, and he being one of them. He seems to be a bit overwhelmed with the with the idea that God has has known. And then he's going to tell you 
in the course of the psalm, the things that God does know about him. And we'll get to that in a minute. But one other just grammatical note out of, out of verse 1. The word searched is really a Hebrew word that means dig or to, he dug. It's a word that's normally associated by, uh, to digging for precious metals, like gold and silver. You'll find that in the, like Job 28. So here's what David is saying. God, you've dug around in me. You've dug around in every part of me. And you know me. I am... I'm known. You have searched, you have dug around and come up with a perfect knowledge about me. Guys, um, this is a very personal psalm, a very personal statement that David is making. It's a, it's a personal project. He, he doesn't say, God knows all things. That's true. But that's not what this psalm is about. It's about God knows me. You know, I think a, a lot of our theological conversations end up just being vague generalizations about things, you know? Like, um, um, <clears throat> nobody's perfect. Well, that's true. But that's vastly different than saying, I'm not perfect. Or, um, everybody's a sinner. Well, that's true. But that's different than saying, I'm a sinner. This psalm is not about vague generalizations. It's about me. That God has known me. There is an observer, and there is an observed, and I'm the object. Now, from there, David goes on to mention throughout the the rest of the psalm, he goes on to mention the things that he realizes that God has has examined and, and knows about him. Let's just, I want to show you some of the things that he says. For instance, uh, in verse 2, he says, You know when I sit down and when I rise up, even the most common and casual acts to my life, my sitting and my standing, he knows it. And then we go from there to the second half of that verse 2, and he says, "Uh, My thoughts, you discern my thoughts from afar, even before I have had them, that is my thoughts, that even before I knew them, they are known. Then we go to verse 3, and he says, You search out my path and my lying down. Uh, in my active life, in my, in my resting life, he knows that as well. And then in verse 3, all my ways. Uh, you're acquainted with all my ways. Uh, every no little part of me escapes your 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 attention. And then in verse four, he says something that should rattle us. He says, "Even before a word is on my tongue, 
Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. My words, even before they arrive on my tongue. My insides, my outsides. No secrets. This is getting scary. Then he says in verse 5, You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. That is, I'm surrounded. It's like I'm ambushed. Nowhere I go, are you not there? There's no place for me to run. There's no secrets. There's no concealment. Now, guys, stop right there. What does that do to you? What what does what does that information do to you? I mean, how does that how does that strike you? What does it uh, um, how does that make you feel that that someone knows everything that there is to know about me, everything that I do, everything that I think, every word that I speak, every place that I go, wherever I turned. Whatever I'm doing, whatever I'm saying, whatever I'm thinking, whether it's in public or private, what does that do to you? It's like you're this little microbe that's under a a telescope, a microscope. He has searched you and know. What does that do to you? Let me change my metaphor um, or the metaphor of the of the psalm and maybe try to explain what I'm trying to get at. Let's talk about for a moment relationships. Everybody likes to talk about relationships. When I did singles at Central Church. Um, all I had to do is announce that we were going to have a retreat on relationships. And, and the, the registrations just soared. People wanted to talk about relationships. We're going to talk about human relationships, kind of, let's just talk about a dating relationship, okay? Now, guys, um, uh, early on in a human relationship, um, every move is, is calculated. That is, I, I don't usually play any of my cards until you know, I know that there's some cards that are being played back. Uh, for instance, you know, there's this rule about if you take this girl out and you like her, you can't call her for three days. You know that. You've, you've got to, if you call her the next day, uh, 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 that's not, that's not good. You have to wait. You have to, you have to calculate your moves because I don't want to make myself emotionally vulnerable until I've, I've gotten certain vibes that that I'd be safe to, to, to make those moves, to play those cards. So on the first date, and let's say, um, let's say you go to a Grizzlies game on your date, you certainly don't want to pledge your love to this girl at halftime. Um, particularly if there's no vibe that has been communicated that that you maybe would be well-received were you to do something that's stupid. But it's only relationally wise and sane to move kind of a point-counterpoint, kind of this 
this relational dance that goes on. Now, um, imagine, if you will, that you're in, a, you're in a relationship where, I'll just speak from a male perspective, but um, you're in a relationship where she knows everything that there is to know about you because you told her, but she has not played one card Now, you know, it's hard to imagine a relationship like that because nobody would be that stupid, would they? Um, that, that isn't, that isn't, that, that's not going to happen. I don't think. Do you see how imbalanced that would be? How, how, <coughs> how that perhaps would make you feel? A little, a little naked? Vulnerable, kind of perhaps embarrassed. You want to get away? You know, I, I bet you all have seen these commercials by Southwest Airline. There's one that's kind of cute to me where this guy, he comes up to this chick and he says, um, Hey, baby, you want to dance? And she says, um, well, I don't know what you got in terms of his dance moves. And so... Uh, Maybe you've seen this. And he gets out on the floor and he and he begins to do his little dancing thing. And, and he's looking good there for, you know, about five seconds. And, I mean, he's got some good, you know, acrobatic kind of dance moves. And all of a sudden he slips up, makes a mistake, gets out of control, and he hits the music table and he and he breaks the, the turntable and, and everything comes crashing in. And, and, and everybody in the party is looking at him with this this look of disgust. And, of course, the, the, the byline is... You want to get away? Well, of course you do. You know why you want to get away? Because you've been exposed. You've been known. You've been seen. You've been examined. And what was seen was not was not altogether good. So now, how do you feel when I tell you that God has perfect knowledge about you? He knows everything perfectly, and He knows everything perfectly at once. The only eyes in the universe that count are looking at you. And they have known. How you feeling? I can tell you what Adam did when he sensed that. Remember in Genesis 3? When he realized that he was being seen, he runs, he hides, he covers up. He's, he's suffering from a cosmic claustrophobia. He's, he's suffocating. He's threatened by this, this gaze, this stare that he realizes that God has on him. And by the way, he's not the only one. Read Romans 1 and you find that people, when they realize that there's this God who is so much greater and bigger and, 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 and powerful than they, they have to they have to get rid of this information they have to dispense with it suppress it bury it 
They've got to run from it. Now, go back to the psalm. I want you to notice how David responds in verse 6. After he said all these things about God and what he knows. He then says, having, having contemplated the immensity of this God. What does he do? He worships. Look at verse 6. Such knowledge is, is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. He, he throws himself into the arms of this God who is so immense. Because you see, ladies and gentlemen, at that moment, his theology has led him to doxology. He runs to this God based on what he knows, not away from him. It's as if, as he considers all these things that God knows about him, it's it's as if he pauses to admire. It's verse six is is paraphrased in a wow. Wow. His theology has taken him to doxology. In verse six he, he stands shuddering over the precipice of what he's just said. And he worships. He is um, he's realizing that he's trying to measure the infinite. He's trying to understand the transcendent. He's trying to, to comprehend that which is incomprehensible. And the only proper response to that Is doxology. Now, guys, those are your only two options. When you realize that God is a knower, when you realize that the things from verses 2 through 5 are all true, not simply about David, but about you. You're standing, you're sitting, you're rising, your paths, your thoughts, your words. All known. There's only two options. You either run to this God. Or you run away from him. But either way. You are still known. Now guys, I'm not going to spend the same amount of time with this next section of Psalm 139. Because basically... It does the same thing. It does the same thing in verses uh, 12 through 18 that you saw happen in verses 1 through 6. But let me just kind of quickly run over it. Um, verses Beginning at verse 7, he realizes that God is everywhere. Everywhere he is or everywhere I'm going to be or everywhere I shall be one day, God is already there. 
I go to heaven, he's there. I go to hell, he's there. I, I, I feel this small bit of space, but he fills it all. Darkness can't hide me. In fact, he says in verse 12, for darkness is as light with you. If I try to hide in the darkness, it's it's light. If I go to heaven, I find you there. If I go to hell, if I go to Sheol, you're there too. And then in verses 13 through 16, ladies and gentlemen, he raises a subject that is, that is very sensitive. Very sensitive. Look what he says beginning in verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. When sperm first met ovum, he was there. Forming and knitting and weaving and and making me. He is my he is my origin. He is my source. He he shaped me. He made me. All of these little features that go into making up the big nose and the loud mouth. All of those just the handiwork of the God who knew me while I was yet unborn, still in a womb. And then, folks, if it couldn't get any bigger than that, it does. In verse 16, he says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Here we go. In your book were written every one of them. Every one of what? What what was written in a book? He tells you, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. (laughs) Gang, I hope you realize what's being claimed there. Each of my days before I was even born were all mapped out. Now again, what does that do to you? How does that make you feel? Threatened? Um, Dehumanized? Um, Terrified? Understand. I, I, for, it, for some it does that. But not for David. Look at verses 17 and 18. He says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, and how vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. Do you see what he did? He did the same thing there that he did in verse 6, guys. He, he thinks through what he knows to be true about God. And, and he realizes that he can't flee him, that he's omnipresent. There's no place I can go where he is not. That even my unformed substance, he was there in the womb of my mother knitting me. And that all my days have been granted to me by this God. Ladies and gentlemen, that'll give you one of two options. You want to get away? 
understand. But David says, verse 17, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, about me. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. You see it? His theology has once again taken him to doxology. He's not dehumanized or threatened or overwhelmed. He's not rebellious. He's not resentful. He marvels. The thoughts of God toward him are too numerous to count. He realizes that he's trying to to number the innumerable. Those big thoughts about God don't repel him. They draw him. He's not alarmed at the fact that God knows all there is to know about him. On the contrary, he's very much comforted. Guys, for a believer, that God would invest such energy in in knowing us is a delight. Ah, but pastor... Um, I, I have a few questions about all this. Well, of course you do. But ladies and gentlemen, that's not doxology. That's inquiry. Nothing wrong with inquiry. But all inquiry, if it doesn't take you to doxology, is the wrong possession of knowledge. Because all my theology is to take me, lead me, drop me off at doxology. You know, guys, all these truths that are claimed here in Psalm 139, truths that are too wonderful to understand and much less explain, are the very truths in which we as Christians have the most to rejoice. Let me mention two things, and I'm pretty much done. Number one, do you know what these claims, these truths about God do to the value of God's promises to us? That is, the unspeakable value that is added to his promises by the recognition that this is who he is. Do you know what that means about the certainty of his promises to his people? Do you know that the, that the, the promises like all things work together for good to them that love God and the called according to his purpose? Do you know what that does to the value of that promise? That that promise can be kept because this is the God who made it. The God that I cannot escape and don't want to. The God who knows my words and my thoughts, my days. He plans them. And he knitted me inside the womb of my mother. And so all the promises that he has made 
that are so under examination in days like the ones we're in. What this does is raise the value of those promises because I know it is a God like this who made them. Secondly, that is, or the second thing in which that we can rejoice because of these truths. That being that the redemption that he has provided in Christ is a perfect remedy for this sinner. You see, my friends, if God knew me anything less than perfectly, how could he have provided a salvation that properly met everything that my soul needed? The salvation that he offers is a perfect one for me and you. Because he has searched me and known. Jesus says in the New Testament, your heavenly father knows that you have need. Yeah, he does. And because he does, he has... He has designed a salvation that is perfectly suited to the sins and the needs of people like us. Anything less than a perfect knowledge of us would have meant a deficient salvation. But because our God and Father, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ is this God, the salvation that he offers is perfectly suited. It's a perfectly suited salvation that is bound up in a person. That person being the Lord Jesus Christ. Every perfection of God bound up in this person and his work designed to redeem people like us. Some of you are still wondering, well, exactly what is doxology? Well, we sing it every now and then. We don't sing it a lot, and I'm glad, but we sing it. I sang it a couple of weeks ago. There's a, there's a little song called the doxology. And it goes like this. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. All of my theology is to take me, not to that song, but it is to take me to the place where I reverence and praise and worship this God that I have worked, that I have found out about. The only legitimate response to a God like this is doxology. 
Anything less than that is a mistaken grasp of who he is. For those of you who have never who have never embraced his Savior, doxology is foreign to you. For the rest of us, it's the reasonable result of knowing things about who this God is. All theology is to lead us to doxology. Our Father, um, my words fall way short of what you deserve. And I pray that you will make up for, for the shortcomings, for the shortcomings in what I've said. And that you would, that you would portray yourself so much better than I have. So that your people might see all of the excellencies of your beauty, things that David saw, things that led him to the place where he puts his hand over his mouth. And all he can do is wonder at the great and glorious God who has revealed himself in Christ Jesus. All of the beauties and the excellencies of God, bound up, displayed, lived out by Jesus Christ. The perfect remedy for the sinner's need. We make our prayer, of course, in Jesus' name.